0: Welcome to the Florida Divorce Podcast, your source for the information you need to successfully get through your divorce and into the next exciting chapter of life. Now, here's your host, attorney Scott Kalish. Hey, everybody. This is attorney Scott Kalish. I am a divorce and family law attorney in South Florida. Today, I have a pretty special episode. I actually have two guests. First time on the podcast, I think that I've had two guests. I got forensic accountant Jason Soman. How's it going, Jason?
1: It's going well. I'm also an amateur podcast producer, so we're here in my office in Boca Raton. Appreciate you hosting this
0: episode. It's awesome. Um, And then I'm also accompanied by uh, Don Mull, mortgage specialist, divorce mortgage specialist. That's thanks right. Thanks for having
2: you, Don. Well, thanks for having me. This is my first. I've never worn headphones before. Really? Yeah. No, but you have your own podcast, right? No, I've on my website. Gotcha. But I've never done. Uh, I was invited to one podcast before.
0: This is your first so, podcast. Like I'm this. honored.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm
0: honored. I'm I, I think uh, I was I was your first guest too, right, uh, Jason, on your podcast?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I think I was your first
2: guest also.
0: I think. Yeah, you absolutely were. Yeah. So so there's cool. a bunch of firsts on First, this episode. Yeah, yeah, so sure. that means
2: I've got to invite you guys to my, if I ever do one. You
0: got to do <laughs> one. I feel like you have a ton of information to, uh, you know, to give the people. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on today to understand cool. and really to, you know, convey to the to listeners exactly like what your role is um, in divorce. Can you kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do?
2: Sure. So this will be my shameless narcissistic <laughs> moment.
0: No, I mean, the whole episode is. So that's why I have you on.
2: Please. So my name is Don Mall. I'm a what's called a Certified Divorce Lending Professional, or the acronym CDLP for short. And what that means is I'm a independent mortgage banker who just happens to focus my practice on working with divorcing homeowners and as a member of the professional divorce team, including obviously the divorce attorney and forensic accountant. So what my role is in the whole process is, especially when the marital home is front and center on the marital balance sheet, is oftentimes we'll have one spouse that wants to retain the marital home. The other spouse will be vacating and purchasing a a home of their own. Mm -hmm. So my role is to really help navigate the many different nuances, and there are, because the journey of the divorcing homeowner is much different when they actually purchase the marital home. Sure. So the whole process is not only different, but working with the likes of you, Scott, where the documents that you submit to your family judge have to align with the documents that, as a lender, that I submit to my judge, the underwriter. And oftentimes, without that knowledge and the input of a CDLP, the ability of your client to effectuate, say, maybe the equity buyout of the marital home is impossible just due to the language that is in your marital settlement agreement that doesn't coincide with the mortgage application. Gotcha. You
0: mentioned a little bit before that, you know, getting possibly a refinance done during a divorce is a lot different than getting it done when you initially, you know, actually buy the house. Can you walk us through a couple of the uh, differences?
2: Sure, so uh, you recently went through a mortgage, or I know you and your sister, someone just went through yes. a mortgage process, yes. right? Yes, yeah. So you've been through it before. Of course. So I'm going to take a leap and say that process was something like this where your mortgage professional said, Scott, I'm going to need a couple years of W-2s, a couple mm-hmm. years of tax returns. Yep. I'm going to need to take a look at a couple months of your financial statements. Uh, I'm going to need a month's worth of pay statements. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pull your credit. Mm -hmm. Based on that, I'm going to tell you what you can afford in terms of purchasing a a home for for yourself. Mm -hmm. Something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that process when it comes to the divorcing homeowner is we really break it into four different stages. First, we've got to vet the marital house itself. Okay. Details of the house are going to be vital to what type of financing is available or not available to the spouse looking to retain the marital home. Uh, we take a look at uh, factors such as valuation. How do we come up with that valuation? Was it a an appraisal that was done? Was mm-hmm. it a what's called a comparative market analysis or a CMA that a, a realtor will, will, will do?
0: Okay,
2: There are, can be some potential gaps in those. We mm-hmm. want to make sure that uh, we narrow those gaps so there's no gaps in that case file. We want to take a look at what kind of equity are we dealing with? And then, so once we find out the necessary details of the home, then we move on to income. Okay. Because many times, say, if we're dealing with a spouse that's been the primary caregiver and the other spouse has been out um, earning the wages, there will be support income, whether it's alimony, whether it's child support, maintenance payments, et cetera. So there are certain guidelines that we have to adhere to for that income. After the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2016, any settlement agreement signed on or after January 19 is, you know, there's no longer a tax incentive for the payor. So if the financial assets are there, the resources, many times we're seeing, okay, in lieu of monthly alimony, here's a lump sum uh, for the equalization payment. Okay, great. You've got uh, to, that, that spouse now has a large fat bank account. Sure. But no income. Sure. Or uh, maybe that spouse is now reentering the workforce after an absence. hmm Okay, there are certain... Guidelines that we have to meet before we can even count that new employment income as what's called qualifying income. Gotcha. So from there, then we have to look at the debt. Yeah. Many times we've had marital debt. How that debt's going to be assigned, how it's going to be distributed. Yeah. Uh, has a huge impact on both spouses when it comes to uh, obtaining mortgage financing. And then once we know those three aspects, then we can move into here are different potential mortgage solutions that are going to fit your need. So that's how that process kind of broken down easily, how it's different than when they actually went and purchased the home.
0: Sure. Can you talk a little bit about, give us a feel for how, you know, alimony and child support payments work into someone's, you know, income and having that used as, you know, overall income to qualify for a new mortgage?
2: Sure. So I'll answer it this way. First of all, when we think income, one of the most frustrating aspects for my clients to understand is the difference between income and what's considered qualifying income. Okay, Qualifying income is is an underwriting term because what happens is a spouse that I'm working with will say, well, I know what my monthly cash flow is, but Don, you just chunked it down and it's a lot less than what it Well, you you actually receive, yeah. Right, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to support income, there are guidelines and there's different agencies. You've got Fannie Mae, you've got Freddie Mac, you've got FHA, you've got USDA, uh, VA- And each of the agencies has their own guidelines when it comes to support income. Mm -hmm. But the general rule of thumb is, if we are working with a spouse that wants to retain the marital home and is going to be using support income, and for our listener, support income, it doesn't matter whether it's child support or alimony. There are what we consider consistency and stability Guidelines that we have to meet for that support income. So mm-hmm. what what they means by that is the underwriter is going to say, okay, if you want me to use this support income as mm-hmm. qualifying income, I want to make sure that the payor of this, say alimony, sure makes those payments as ordered. So let's just say, for example, if alimony is thousand dollars a month, that's going to be due on the fifth of the month,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the payor says, well, I'll pay $500 on the 5th and then I'll pay $500 on the 15th when I get paid again, that's not going to pass the stability and consistency test. So it, they have to be paid as ordered. And then what the underwriter is going to say is if we're going to be doing a what's called a conventional loan,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the, the underwriter is going to say, well, I want to see the payor make six months of payments as ordered before that looks like qualifying income to me. So we have to wait six months for those payments to be paid as ordered before we can even start the mortgage process. Wow. And then once the underwriter says, okay, huh. I can see that the payor has made six months of payments as ordered. Now I want to see those payments are going to continue for an additional 36 months. So in essence, we need a minimum of 42 months of payments. Gotcha. So where we'll run into issues is we'll say sometimes a marital settlement agreement will say, okay, okay. The spouse retaining the home has 180 days to retain or to refinance the home. Mm-hmm. Say, so, well, if we're using support income as qualifying income, it's just not going to work. So it's that's where the value of having a CDLP come in and say, okay, listen, let's just make sure that we structure the settlement agreement and the real property section in a way that your client can successfully effectuate this part of the equity buyout.
0: Yeah, that makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. And it's very, very important information to, uh, to have at the front end because if you don't have it, you, you're pretty much set up to fail.
2: Well, that's when I kind of prefaced before the documents you submit to your judge have to align with the documents that we submit to our judge and writer. So
0: if Mm -hmm. someone is thinking that they want to keep the house, right, and and, and do a refinance, when do you think the best time to contact someone like yourself or
2: or yourself, you know? The earlier, the better. I just had someone call because people are going to our website now. I just had someone call earlier this year and he said, I just got divorced And I said, does this mean we have a final judgment? He said, yes. I said, okay. He said, and during the divorce process, my wife said that she wanted to sell the home. Mm -hmm. So now she's changed her mind and she wants to keep the marital home. But I'm on the mortgage, so she wants to assume the mortgage, which is a whole nother issue. So as it turned out, had there been one sentence of language in the settlement agreement, it would not have been an issue for him. He was looking to purchase a new home. And I said, okay, you're going to have to go back and either, whether it's an addendum or an amendment to the sure. settlement agreement. Otherwise, so that's now delaying his ability to obtain mortgage financing for purchase." What was that
0: home. one line that had to go into the
2: so settlement agreement? what's happening now, and it kind of leads to a, a big topic right now, and that's mm-hmm. loan assumption, mm-hmm. because Fortune Magazine last month had a statistic that 99% of mortgages... Have rates that are lower than the rate environment that we're in today. Mm-hmm. So back during the pandemic, rates were at historic lows—they're in the twos and the threes. Now we're in the high sixes. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is people refinance during the pandemic. They're down in the twos or the low threes, and now they're saying we're getting divorced, and one spouse says, "Well, what if I just—if I went to refinance, I'm going from two something to six something? Yeah, can I just assume the loan?" And there's two types of loan assumptions. There's what's called a simple assumption and there's what's called a qualified assumption. Mm-hmm. The simple assumption is one, one spouse, let's say she's retaining it, he's vacated, mm-hmm. and it's his mortgage, or they're co-borrowers. In either case, she can just uh, make those payments so she can be assigned that debt to be making those those mortgage payments. Now, in this case, I'm talking about all we needed to see. So what'll happen in that case? Yeah, Maybe he says, okay, I'm comfortable with you making those payments because it is a big ask. Because if she's not Tommy with the payments, oh yeah, he's still obligated he's still on the hook, right? And it's
0: going to be his credit that's his gonna be credit's going to take yeah. a
2: huge hit. Uh huh. Or if she defaults, then he's still on it. Mm-hmm. However, if there's language that you would put that she is now going to be responsible for making the mortgage payments, as long as it's in the settlement agreement. In this case, what would happen is when he goes and talks to the lender, the underwriter's going to say, "Okay, I fully recognize that he's still obligated to this mortgage." However, mm-hmm. That is now considered what we call a court-ordered assignment of debt or a contingent liability. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the underwriter will remove that monthly mortgage obligation from his debt-to-income ratio. Mm -hmm. So from a qualification standpoint for him obtaining new mortgage financing, it's not going to impact him negatively. Gotcha. But I always, always, in fact, I was in a mediation this morning, and this couple, very amicable, and I said, if she assumes it, just so you know... Here's, it's a big ask because your credit can take yeah, it. Yeah,
0: there's got to be a lot of trust there still.
2: Right, absolutely.
0: But, but you know, at the end of the day, they can mm. go out and buy a new house and that new property is not going to affect, or the old property is not going to affect their credit mm. and their debt to income ratio for the new property, right? Correct. I understand that so right. that's
2: why when this when this gentleman called me, I said, we're just missing that one sentence.
0: And it's possible to go back, as, as a lawyer, you know, it, it's possible to go back to, you know, amend and do an addendum to the marital settlement agreement and possibly even get, you know, an updated final judgment. But you're saying that for your role, that's
2: enough. Had, had that team brought in a CDLP sure. to advise, then it would have been a non-issue. Gotcha. gotcha. Now it's just more work involved.
0: Is there one mortgage company that you work for or can you get mortgages for or through Multiple different companies. How does that work?
2: Right. So I'm, with, I'm the mortgage lender. So I'm okay. an independent mortgage bank. Okay. So you've got commercial banks and you've got independent mortgage banks. Okay. We're an independent mortgage bank, which means all we do is mortgages. A mortgage broker will be one that represents different mortgage banks. Mm-hmm. So the difference between the two is as a lender, we actually have the in-house underwriting. We, gotcha. we fund the loan, underwrite the loan, and like 90 plus percent of the banks, we sell the loan.
0: Okay. And then, in terms of getting your advice or getting your you know, input or getting you on board on a case, how does that work? How much does it cost?
2: Oh, sure. Big concern with clients because they're already a yeah, retainer to death, right? Yeah. So. The <laughs> attorney,
0: accountant, and then now another mortgage professional <laughs> right, expert, right? right. It's, it's so,
2: lot. as a licensed loan officer, I am bound by the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. So, I am prohibited from charging a fee for okay. what I do. So, I'm just like any other mortgage professional within that. When the uh, loan closes, our respective bank pays us. So well, that's why I always tell the clients that I work with is, hey, listen, you're not going to be paying me out of pocket. No money out but of if pocket. But if you're going to be refinancing the home or maybe purchasing a new one, I just ask that you consider me to help you with okay. that transaction. That sounds like a so, win-win. Yeah. So And I'm a consumer, too, because they write in my business, oh, well, what's your rate? What's your rate? Yeah. I'm like, look, I'm going to tell you what every bank up and down Main Street is charging. By the way, we all get it from the same place, and that's Wall Street. Gotcha. So, so competitive uh, rates. It's, it's, if we weren't competitive, we wouldn't be wouldn't in be business. business. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Right.
0: Okay. So, so if the listeners want to get in touch with you to get your uh, input or advice, how, how can they do that? A couple of ways. I've got a
2: website that's pretty easy to remember. Okay. It's com. Nice. So if they go to the divorcemortgageguide.com uh that's an easy way to and I would encourage them if they're going through a divorce every month the divorce lending association we come out with a monthly newsletter and there's a lot of great information sure each month then they can go in there and check out the library and they'll see a little 2 minute video of me and and uh, all my information's there
0: okay nice so. well I appreciate you having I appreciate you coming on to the podcast oh, that's great uh, giving everyone this really important information. Thank you also, Jason, for hosting us.
2: Jason, you got to quiet down next time. Yeah, no.
0: Jason, do you have any questions? No, I
1: definitely have some questions. Uh, I was just holding them in. I didn't want to All right, go ahead. Sorry, I almost almost ended the podcast. And when you're talking about qualifying income, Don, I, I know a lot of times when we're determining someone's income during divorce, it includes like personal expenses and things like that. Like, are those things that you could consider in qualifying income or... Let's what? say they, they own a business and they get a car paid for, or they get use of the corporate credit card, private jets, things of that nature. Are those, I guess, what would be included in qualifying income sure. or certain things that may not be included that someone would want to...
2: Right. Well, uh, if they've got the corporate jet, a lot of those people don't need a mortgage. But <laughs> um, But Thanks uh, for pointing that yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> However... So in terms of qualifying income, and no, it's a fair question because what'll happen especially self-employed, right? And so they'll bring their 1099s and their tax uh, that's been prepared by their tax preparer. Well, the tax preparer's job is to minimize Sure. right their overall income factoring in expenses purposes, right yeah. for tax purposes to minimize their tax liability. Then they go to apply for, for a mortgage. mortgage and the underwriter is saying, "Well, where's the where's, where's the income? income?" right? So <laughs> yeah. there you got to disconnect uh-huh. But in terms of uh, income, Jason, it goes all back to the IRS. What's been reported to the IRS? Really? Yeah. So people will say, "Well, well, you know, I, I, I had a divorcing couple, and she, she has a rental home, and she's got a renter in there, paying her, I think, two thousand a month, but it hasn't been reported. So even though she's receiving two thousand dollars a month, wow. we can't use it because, uh, yeah, because it, it hasn't been reported. So it's whatever's on the taxes." Hmm. I don't know if that answered your question.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because I think a lot of times when we determine someone's income, it's very different than what was reported. Oh, it's
0: very different from an exact opposite of what, you know, you require, right? Uh If we had to rely on taxes, I mean, a ton of people aren't, you know, forthcoming on their taxes. So it would cut a lot of people short, you know. Just
2: like financial affidavits, right? Exactly. They're very very accurate. That's the
0: biggest (laughs) joke. And it's such a shame. It really is because like, you know, it's such an important document that you're swearing under oath, under penalties of perjury that, hey, this document is legitimate. I've never seen like an honest financial affidavit ever. No, I
2: you know? I was brought in a case and the other spouse asked if I could qualify him based on the financial affidavit <laughs> that he filed. Oh my God. That's <laughs> so, so just, funny. Well, you know, you don't know, you don't know, but yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, no, so no, that's, uh, the, that's, 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 believe me, Jason, that's the biggest challenge when it comes to creating that qualifying income. So
0: Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Thanks again, Jason, for hosting. And uh, maybe we'll do this again.
2: Oh, this is awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Florida Divorce Podcast.
0: To learn the 10 secrets behind every successful divorce, visit FloridaDivorcePodcast.com. If you'd like Scott's help in your divorce case, go to kjlawfla.com.